2: The Delphi Murders, the brand new podcast from HLN. This is the story of teens Abby Williams and Libby German. In February 2017, they went for a hike in Delphi, Indiana, and vanished. Nearly 24 hours later, their bodies are found, and the police began working a crime scene they say they'd never unsee. Also found, Libby's phone, which has video and audio of the killer, who... Three years on remains a mystery. Down the Hill, the Delphi Murders begins on February 5th. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's January 22nd, 2020. Yesterday, the United States Senate engaged in its first day of argumentation in the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump. Today, the House managers are set to lay out their case to senators for removing the president from office. I'm Margaret Taylor, a senior editor at Lawfare. But before we get to the house manager's arguments, we need to summarize everything that happened last night that we did not cover in yesterday's episode. In the early morning hours of Wednesday, January 22nd, the Senate approved the rules resolution governing the impeachment trial of President Trump that had been offered by Senator Mitch McConnell more than 12 hours earlier. It was approved on a 53-47 party line vote after Republicans had defeated all 11 amendments offered by Senate Democrats. In yesterday's podcast, you heard debate on the first four of those amendments to subpoena documents from the White House, from the State Department, from the Office of Management and Budget, and to subpoena the testimony of acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Last night, an additional seven amendments were also rejected. One called for a subpoena to the Department of Defense to produce documents related to withholding of military assistance for Ukraine. The next was for a subpoena for the testimony of Michael Duffy, an OMB official, and Robert Blair, a top advisor to Mick Mulvaney, who were both involved in the freeze on military aid for Ukraine. The next was an amendment that would have forced President Trump's defense team to provide documents the House managers have been seeking if the president's lawyer sought to introduce new evidence into the trial record. The next was for a subpoena for the testimony of John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, who had indicated a willingness to testify if subpoenaed. The next was an amendment to guarantee a vote on specific requests for witnesses later in the trial. All of these amendments were tabled, meaning defeated, on party-line votes. Next, an amendment to provide more time to respond to motions prior to the beginning of argumentation, 24 hours rather than two, was also defeated. This was the only vote in which a Republican, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, voted with Democrats. The amendment was nonetheless rejected 52 to 48. The last amendment would have required Chief Justice John Roberts to rule on motions to subpoena witnesses and documents. It was defeated on party line. At about one o'clock in the morning, an exchange between House Manager Jerry Nadler and White House Counsel Pat Cipollone prompted a response from Chief Justice John Roberts. At about one in the morning, an exchange between House Manager Gerald Nadler and White House Counsel Pat Cipollone prompted a response from Chief Justice John Roberts.
3: I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the President's Council, in equal terms, uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. Um, In the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging. And the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used. I don't think we need to aspire to that highest standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should remember where they are.
1: With the impeachment trial rules resolution passed and no motions filed the next morning, the scene was set for House managers to use their 24 hours over three days to make their case.
4: Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment, while the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States.
2: Majority Leader Mitch McConnell opened the day explaining that today, the Senate would hear arguments from the House managers.
5: No motions were filed this morning, so we'll proceed to the House manager's presentation We will go for approximately two hours and take a short recess when there is an appropriate break time between presenters.
3: Pursuant to the provisions of Senate Resolution 483, the managers for the House of Representatives have 24 hours to make the presentation of their case. The Senate will now hear you.
2: House Manager Adam Schiff begins his presentation.
6: Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, counsel for the President, and my fellow House Managers, I want to begin uh, by thanking you, Chief Justice, uh, for a very long day for the way you have presided over these proceedings. And I want to thank the senators uh, also. Uh, We went well into the morning, as you know, um, until I believe around 2 in the morning. And you paid attention to every word and argument you heard from both sides in this impeachment trial and I know we are both deeply grateful for that. It was an exhausting day for us, certainly, but we have adrenaline uh, going through our veins and for those that are required to sit and listen, it is a much more difficult task. And of course, we know our positions. You have the added difficulty of having to weigh the facts and the law. So I wanna begin today by thanking you uh, for the conduct of the proceedings uh, yesterday and for inviting your patience as we go forward. We have some very long days yet to come. So let us begin. When a man, unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, having the advantage of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, When such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day, it may justly be suspected that his object is to throw things into confusion, that he might ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. Those words were written by Alexander Hamilton in a letter to President George Washington at the height of the Panic of 1792, a financial credit crisis that shook our young nation. Hamilton was responding to sentiments relayed to Washington as he traveled the country that America, in the face of that crisis, might descend from a Republican form of government plunging instead into that of monarchy. The framers of the Constitution worried then as we worry today, that a leader might come to power not to carry out the will of the people that he was elected to represent, but to pursue his own interests. They feared that a president would subvert our democracy by abusing the awesome power of his office for his own personal or political gain. And so they devised a remedy as powerful as the evil it was meant to combat, impeachment. As centuries have passed, our founders have achieved an almost mythical character. We are aware of their flaws, certainly some very painful and pronounced indeed. And yet, when it came to the drafting of a new system of government never seen before and with no guarantee it would succeed, we cannot help but be in awe of their genius. Their prescience, even, vindicated time and time again. Still, and maybe because of their brilliance and the brilliance of their words, we find year after year it more difficult to imagine them as human beings. This is no less true of Alexander Hamilton, notwithstanding his recent return to celebrity. But they were human beings. They understood human frailties even as they exhibited them. They could appreciate just as we can how power can corrupt, and even as we struggle to understand how the framers might have responded to presidential misconduct of the kind and character that we are here to try, we should not imagine for one moment that they lacked basic common sense or refused to apply it ourselves. They knew what it was like to live under a despot, and they risked their lives to be free of it. They knew they were creating an enormously powerful executive, and they knew they needed to constrain it. They did not intend for the power of impeachment to be used frequently or over mere matters of policy, but they put it in the Constitution for a reason. For a man who would subvert the interests of the nation to pursue his own interests. For a man who would seek to perpetuate himself in office by inviting foreign interference and cheating in an election. For a man who would be disdainful of constitutional limit, ignoring or defeating the other branches of government and their co-equal powers. For a man who believed that the Constitution gave him the right to do anything he wanted and practiced in the art of deception. For a man who believed that he was above the law and beholden to no one. For a man, in short, who would be a king. We are here today in this hallowed chamber undertaking this solemn action for only the third time in history because Donald J. Trump, the 45th President of the United States, has acted precisely as Hamilton and his contemporaries (laughs) feared. President Trump solicited foreign interference in our democratic elections, abusing the power of his office to seek help from abroad to improve his reelection prospects at home. And when he was caught, he used the powers of that office to obstruct the investigation into his own misconduct. To implement this corrupt scheme, President Trump pressured the President of Ukraine to publicly announce investigations into two discredited allegations that would benefit President Trump's 2020 presidential campaign. When the Ukrainian president did not immediately assent, President Trump withheld two official acts to induce the Ukrainian leader to comply a head of state meeting in the Oval Office and military funding. Both were of great consequence to Ukraine and to our national interest and in security, but one looms largest. President Trump withheld hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to a strategic partner at war with Russia to secure foreign help with his reelection. in other words, to cheat. In this way, the president used official state powers available only to him, and unavailable to any political opponent to advantage himself in a democratic election. His scheme was undertaken for a simple but corrupt reason to help him win reelection in 2020. But the effect of his scheme was to undermine our free and fair elections and to put our national security at risk. It was not even necessary that Ukraine undertake the political investigations the president was seeking, they merely had to announce them. This is significant for President Trump had no interest in fighting corruption as he would claim after he was caught, rather his interest was in furthering corruption by the announcement of investigations that were completely without merit. The first sham investigation that President Trump desired was into former Vice President Joe Biden, who had sought the removal of a corrupt Ukrainian prosecutor during the previous U.S. administration. The vice president acted in accordance with U.S. official policy at the time and was supported unanimously by our European allies and key global financial institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund that shared the concern over corruption. Despite this fact, in the course of this scheme, President Trump and his agents pressed the Ukrainian president to announce an investigation into the false claim that Vice President Biden wanted the corrupt prosecutor removed from power in order to stop an investigation into Burisma Holdings, a company on whose board Biden's son, Hunter, sat. This allegation is simply untrue, and it has been widely debunked by Ukrainian and American experts alike. That reality mattered not to President Trump. To him, the value in promoting a negative tale about former Vice President Biden, true or false, was its usefulness to his re-election campaign. It was a smear tactic against a political opponent that President Trump apparently feared. If not remedied by his conviction in the Senate and removal from office, President Trump's abuse of his office and obstruction of Congress will permanently alter the balance of power among the branches of government inviting future Presidents to operate as if they are also beyond the reach of accountability, Congressional oversight, and the law. On the basis of this egregious misconduct, the House of Representatives returned two articles of impeachment against the President. First charging that President Trump corruptly abused the powers of the Presidency to solicit foreign interference in the upcoming presidential election for his personal political benefit and second, the President Trump obstructed an impeachment inquiry into that abuse of power in order to cover up his misconduct. The House did not take this extraordinarily, extraordinary step lightly. As we will discuss, impeachment exists for cases in which the conduct of the President rises beyond mere policy disputes to be decided otherwise and without urgency at the ballot box. Instead we are here today to consider a much more grave matter and that is an attempt to use the powers of the presidency to cheat in an election for precisely this reason the president's misconduct cannot be decided at the ballot box for we cannot be assured that the vote will be fairly won. In corruptly using his office to gain a political advantage in abusing the powers of that office in such a way to jeopardize our national security and the integrity of our elections, in obstructing the investigation into his own wrongdoing, the president has shown that he believes that he's above the law and scornful of constraint, as we saw yesterday on the screen, that under Article Two he could do anything he wants. Moreover, given the seriousness of the conduct at issue and its persistence, this matter cannot and must not be decided by the courts, which, apart from the presence of the Chief Justice here today, are given no role in impeachments in either the House or the Senate. Being drawn into litigation taking many months or years to complete would provide the President with an opportunity to continue his misconduct. He would remain secure in the knowledge that he may tie up the Congress in the courts indefinitely, as he has with Don McGahn, rendering the impeachment power effectively meaningless. We also took this step with the knowledge that this was not the first time the President solicited foreign interference in our elections. In 2016, then-candidate Trump implored Russia to hack his opponent's email account, something that the Russian military agency did Only hours later, only hours later, when the president said, hey, Russia, if you're listening, they were listening. Only hours later, they hacked his opponent's campaign. And the president has made it clear this will also not be the last time asking China only recently to join Ukraine in investigating his political opponent. Over the coming days, we will present to you and to the American people the extensive evidence collected during the House's impeachment inquiry into the president's abuse of power. Overwhelming evidence. Notwithstanding his unprecedented and wholesale obstruction of the investigation into that misconduct, you will hear and read testimony from courageous public servants who upheld their oath to the Constitution and their legal obligations to comply with congressional action despite a categorical order by President Trump not to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. These are courageous Americans who were told by the President of the United States not to cooperate, not to appear, not to testify, but who had the sense of duty to do so. But more than that, you will hear from witnesses who have not yet testified, like John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney, Mr. Blair and Mr. Duffy. And if you can believe the President's words last month, you will also hear from Secretary Pompeo. You will hear their testimony at the same time as the American people. That is, if you allow it if we have a fair trial. During our presentation, you will see documentary records, those the President was unable to suppress, that exposed the President's scheme in detail. You will learn f- of further evidence that has been revealed in the days since the House voted to impeach President Trump, even as the President and his agents have persisted in their efforts to cover up their wrongdoing from Congress and the public. And you will see dozens of new documents, providing new and critical evidence of the president's guilt that remain at this time in the president's hands, and in the hands of the Department of Defense, and the Department of State, and the Office of Management and Budget, even the White House. You will see them, and so will the American people, if you allow it. If, in the name of a fair trial, You will demand it. These are politically charged times. Tempers can run high, particularly where this president is concerned. But these are not unique times. Deep divisions and disagreements were hardly alien concepts to the framers. So they designed the impeachment power in such a way as to insulate it as best they could from the crush of partisan politics. The framers placed the question of removal before the United States Senate, a body able to rise above the fray, to soberly judge the president's conduct or misconduct for what it was, nothing more and nothing less. In Federalist 65, Hamilton wrote, where else than in the Senate could have been found a tribunal sufficiently dignified or sufficiently independent? What other body would be likely to feel confidence enough in this own situation to preserve unawed and uninfluenced the necessary impartiality between an individual accused and the representatives of the people, his accuser? It is up to you to be the tribunal that Hamilton envisioned. It is up to you to show the American people and yourselves that his confidence in that of the other founders was rightly placed. The Constitution entrusts you to responsible, to the responsibility of acting as impartial jurors, to hold a fair and thorough trial and to weigh the evidence before you, no matter what your party affiliation or your vote in the previous election or the next, our duty is to the Constitution and to the rule of law. I recognize there'll be times during the trial that you may long to return to the business of the Senate. The American people look forward to the same. But not before you decide what kind of democracy that you believe we ought to be and what the American people have a right to expect in the conduct of their president. The House believes that an impartial juror, upon hearing the evidence that the managers will lay out in the coming days, will find that the Constitution demands the removal of Donald J. Trump from his office as President of the United States. But that will be for you to decide, with the weight of history upon you, and as President Kennedy once said, a good conscience your only sure reward. Hamilton explained that impeachment was not designed to cover only statutory or common law crimes, but instead crimes against the body politic. Hamilton wrote, the subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. In other words, impeachment would be confined to abuses of people's trust and to the society itself. This is precisely the abuse that has been undertaken by our current president when he withheld money and support for an ally at war to secure a political benefit. The punishment for those crimes would fit the political nature of the offense. As James Wilson, a delegate at the Constitutional Convention and a future Associate Justice of the Supreme Court reasoned, Impeachments are confined to political characters, to political crimes and misdemeanors, and to political punishments. That punishment, the framers determined, would be neither prison nor fines, but instead limited to removal from office and disqualification from holding future office.
2: Congressman Schiff then gave an overview of the House impeachment inquiry, which began on September 24th. He discussed the testimony and the documents the House received, which you'll hear about
6: in detail later. Now let me turn to the second article of impeachment, which charges the president with misusing the powers of his office to obstruct and interfere with the impeachment inquiry. The evidence you'll hear during the House presentation is equally undeniable and damning. President Trump issued a blanket order directing the entire executive branch not to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry and to withhold all documents and testimony. His order was categorical, it was indiscriminate, and historically unprecedented. No president before President Trump has ever ordered the complete defiance of an impeachment inquiry or sought to obstruct and impede so comprehensively the ability of the House of Representatives to investigate high crimes and misdemeanors. The president, was able to block agencies across the executive branch from producing any records or documents to the House investigative committees despite duly authorized subpoenas. The White House continues to refuse to produce a single document or record in response to a House subpoena that remains in full force and effect. The Department of State and Office of Management and Budget, the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense Continued to refuse to provide a single document or record in response to House subpoenas that remain in full force and effect.
2: House Manager Jerry Nadler outlined the beginnings of the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and his involvement in Trump's conduct at issue, or what Nadler referred to as, quote, the story of the president's Ukraine scheme, unquote. He also provided backstory behind conspiracy theories related to Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch and former Vice President Joe Biden.
7: Mr. Giuliani was already engaged in an effort to convince Ukrainian officials to announce two sham investigations. The first was an effort to smear former Vice President Joe Biden. The second was designed to undermine the intelligence community's unanimous assessment that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. One obstacle to Mr. Giuliani's work was Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. A 33-year veteran of the Foreign Service, Ambassador Yovanovitch had partnered with Ukraine to root out the kind of corruption that would have allowed Mr. Giuliani's lies to flourish. In order to complete his mission, Mr. Giuliani first needed Ambassador Yovanovitch out of the way. And so in early 2019, Mr. Giuliani launched a public smear campaign against the ambassador, an effort that involved Mr. Giuliani's allies in Ukraine, the president's allies in the United States, and eventually President Trump himself. Please remember that the object of the president's Ukraine scheme was to obtain a corrupt advantage for his reelection campaign. As Mr. Kent indicated, The smear campaign against Ambassador Ivanovich was orchestrated by a core group of corrupt Ukrainian officials working at Mr. Giuliani's direction. This group included two additional characters who have been in the news of late, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman. Mr. Parnas and Mr. Fruman were, of course, indicted last year on several charges, including charges related to large donations they made to support President Trump. Simply put, in doing her job well, Ambassador Yovanovitch drew Mr. Lutsenko's ire. And as Mr. Kent observed, you can't promote principled anti-corruption efforts without pissing off corrupt people. As it turned out, this statement applied to Yuri Lutsenko and to Rudy Giuliani who feared that the ambassador would stand in the way of his corrupt efforts to coerce Ukraine into conducting investigations that would benefit the political interests of his client, President Trump. Giuliani's coordinated smear campaign against Ambassador Yovanovitch became public in the United States in late March 2019, with the publication of a series of opinion pieces in The Hill, based on interviews with Lutsenko. On March 20th, 2019, in one piece in the Hill, Lutsenko falsely alleged that Ambassador Ivanovitch had given him a so-called do not prosecute list. <coughs> not only was the allegation false, but after having helped originate the claim, Lutsenko himself would later go on to retract it. The same piece also falsely stated that Ambassador Ivanovitch had quote, made disparaging statements about President Trump, unquote. A statement issued by the State Department declared the allegations to be a total fabrication. President Trump promoted Solomon's article in a tweet which intensified the public attacks against Ambassador Yovanovitch. Then on March 24th, Donald Trump Jr. called Ambassador Yovanovitch a joker on Twitter and called for her removal. You can see the slides of the two tweets. These unfounded smears by the president and his son reverberated in Ukraine. Deputy Assistant Secretary George Kent testified that starting in mid-March, Rudy Giuliani was almost unmissable in this, quote, campaign of slander, close quote. And according to Mr. Kent, Mr. Lutsenko's press spokeswoman retweeted Donald Trump Jr.'s tweet attacking the ambassador, further undermining her standing. The second false allegation that the president wanted the Ukrainians to announce was that Vice President Biden used his power to protect the company on whose board his son sat by forcing the removal of Viktor Shokin, the corrupt former prosecutor general. It is true that Vice President Biden helped remove Mr. Shokin, who was widely believed to be corrupt. And as I said a few minutes ago, it was official policy of the United States, the European community and others in order to fight corruption in Ukraine to ask that Shokin and Lutsenko be removed. So the Vice President, Vice President Biden, in fulfilling U.S. policy pressured Ukraine to remove Shokin, not to secure some personal benefit, but to advance the official policy of the United States and its allies. Even Ms. Lutsenko, who initially seeded the allegations against Mr. Biden in American media, later admitted that the allegations against the vice president were false. And Rudy Giuliani told Kurt Volker the Special Representative for Ukrainian Negotiations, who had a prominent role in the scheme, that he also knew the attacks on Joe Biden were a lie. With Ambassador Yovanovitch out of the way, the first chapter of the Ukraine scheme was complete. Mr. Giuliani and his agents could now apply direct pressure to the Ukrainian government to spread these two falsehoods. And who benefited from this scheme? Who sent Mr. Giuliani to Ukraine in the first place? Of course, we could rephrase that question as the former Republican leader of the Senate, Howard Baker, asked it in 1973. What did the president know and when did he know it?
2: Next, House manager Sylvia Garcia detailed Giuliani's efforts on behalf of his client, President Trump, to key meetings that showed Giuliani's role and the president's views about obtaining information from foreign governments on his political opponents.
8: On April 25, former Vice President Biden publicly announced his bid for the presidency, and immediately he was at the top of the polls. That same day, David Holmes, an American diplomat at our embassy in Ukraine, learned that Giuliani had reached out to the head of President Zelensky's campaign. As Mr. Holmes explained, the new Ukrainian government began to think that Giuliani was a significant person in terms of managing their relationship with the United States. As Giuliani and his associates worked behind the scenes to get access to the new leadership in Ukraine, President Trump was publicly signaling his interest in the investigations. On May 2nd, The president appeared on Fox News, who had asked, should the former vice president explain himself on his feeling in Ukraine and whether there was a conflict with his son's business interests? President Trump replied as follows.
3: I'm hearing it's a major scandal, major problem, Mm -hmm. very bad things happened, and we'll see what that is. They even have him on tape talking about it. They have Joe Biden on tape talking about the prosecutor, and I've seen that tape. A lot of people are talking about that tape. But that's up to them. They have to solve that problem.
8: The tape President Trump referenced is a video from January 2018, in which Vice President Biden explained he placed an ultimatum to the Ukrainian president to remove the corrupt prosecutor general to ensure that the taxpayer money would be used appropriately. The Vice President's actions were consistent with official U.S. policy, as well as the opinions of the international community. On May 9, the New York Times published an article about Giuliani's plan to visit Ukraine. In the article, Giuliani confirmed that he planned to meet Zelensky. At that meeting, he wanted to press the Ukrainian government to pursue the investigations, investigations that President Trump promoted only days earlier. Giuliani said, We're not meddling in an election. We're meddling in an investigation, which we have a right to do. Giuliani even went so far as to acknowledge that his actions could benefit President Trump personally. He said, and I quote, this isn't foreign policy. I'm asking them to do an investigation they're doing already and that other people are telling them to stop. And I'm going to give them reasons why they shouldn't stop it because that information would be very, very helpful to my client and may turn out to be helpful to my government. That's it right there, Giuliani admitting he was asking Ukraine to work on investigations that would be very, very helpful to the president. He was not doing foreign policy. He was not doing this on behalf of the government. He was doing this for personal interests of his client, Donald J. Trump. The next morning on May 10, Amid coverage of his planned trip to Ukraine, Giuliani tweeted further about Biden. Witnesses said the reference to taking me down was to unfounded allegations that Ukraine had interfered in the 2016 election. This was what President Trump considered to be corruption in Ukraine. The president's words echoed Giuliani's public statements about Ukraine in early May. Rather than committing to an Oval Office meeting with the Ukrainian leader, President Trump directed the delegation to talk to Giuliani. Here is how Ambassador Sondland described that instruction from the president.
9: If we wanted to get anything done with Ukraine, it was apparent to us we needed to talk to Rudy.
10: Right. You understood that Mr. Giuliani spoke for the president, correct?
9: That's
8: correct. Ambassador Sondland saw the writing on the wall. Sondland concluded that if we did not talk to Rudy, nothing would move forward on Ukraine.
2: As Representative Garcia detailed, administration officials met with President Trump in May and urged him to invite Zelensky to the Oval Office. Trump refused, saying the Ukrainians tried to take him down.
8: Around this time, the president publicly expressed that he thought it would be okay to accept foreign interference to assist his campaign if it was in the form of opposition research on his opponent. Let's listen to that shocking interview.
3: Campaign this time around, if foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called, From a country, Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. You want that kind of
8: interference in our elections? It's not an interference.
3: They have information. I think I'd take it.
8: Shocking video. Meanwhile, Giuliani continued to press Ukraine to do the president's political dirty work. On June 21, for instance, Giuliani tweeted the following... New press of Ukraine still silent on investigation of Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election and alleged Biden bribery of President Poroshenko. Time for leadership and investigate both if you want to purge how Ukraine was abused by Hillary and Obama people. The quid pro quo scheme was taking shape. Giuliani was publicly advocating for Ukraine to conduct politically motivated investigations, while President Trump refused to schedule an Oval Office meeting for Ukraine's new president. As Ambassador Sondland testified, the scheme to pressure Ukraine to conduct these investigations would only get more insidious with time.
10: Hey everyone, Andrew Iden here, host of the brand new podcast from HLN, Down the Hill, The Delphi Murders. This is the story of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. They were typical teens, into art, softball, Snapchat. And in February of 2017, they went for a hike on a warm day in Delphi, Indiana, and vanished. Nearly 24 hours after that hike, their bodies are found in the woods. They've been murdered, and the police begin working a crime scene they say they'll never unsee. Also found, Libby's cell phone, which has video and audio of the killer, who three years later remains on the loose. Down the Hill, the Delphi Murders begins on February 5th. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: House Manager Jason Crow then provided details about the hold on security assistance to Ukraine, including broader foreign policy context of the U.S.-Ukraine relationship. He continued to add details of the interagency communications about the hold and contacts between the U.S. government and Ukraine officials about the hold.
0: So why should any American care about what's happening in Ukraine? Timothy Morrison, former senior director for Europe and Russia at the NSC, put it bluntly.
3: Third, I continue to believe Ukraine is on the front lines of a strategic competition between the West and Vladimir Putin's revanchist Russia. Russia is a failing power, but it is still a dangerous one. The United States aids Ukraine and her people so they can fight Russia over there, and we don't have to fight Russia here. Support for Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty has been a bipartisan objective since Russia's military invasion in 2014. It must continue to be.
0: We help our partner fight Russia over there so we don't have to fight Russia here. Our friends on the front lines and trenches with sneakers. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014, the United States has stood by Ukraine. Our diplomats and military commanders have long said that supporting Ukraine makes us safer. But you don't need me to tell you that You all know it very well. When the funding for this security assistance came up for a vote under this roof, 87 of you voted for the aid. And many of you have been staunch advocates for Ukraine, working in a nonpartisan way to support our friends. And that support makes a lot of sense because politics should not play a part in ensuring that Ukraine can battle Russian aggression and ensure that freedom wins in Europe. This body has in so many ways set that example. Protecting Europe from Russia is not a political game. In 2019, Congress provided $391 million in security assistance. This included $250 million through the Department of Defense, the uh, Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, USAI, and $141 million through the State Department's Foreign Military Financing Program. FMF. President Trump signed the bill to authorize this aid in August 2018 and signed another bill to fund it the following month. The aid was underway. The train was leaving the station and following the same track it had followed every single year. But all of this was about to change. In July of 2019, President Trump ordered the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, to put a hold on all of the aid. The president personally made this decision even after his own appointed advisors warned him that it wasn't in our country's interest to withhold the aid, after overwhelming support in this Senate and against longstanding policy even in his own administration. But what's most interesting to me about this is that he was only interested in the Ukraine aid. Nobody else. The US provides aid to dozens of countries around the world, lots of partners and allies. He didn't ask about any of them, just Ukraine. The most important question here is why would he do that? What was his motivation? Well. We now know why. This hold shocked people across our own government. The Department of Defense, along with the State Department, had already certified to Congress that Ukraine had implemented sufficient anti-corruption reforms to get the funds. And the Defense Department had already notified Congress of its intent to deliver the assistance. So let's recap all of this. Congress had already funded it. Our own government had already certified that it met all the standards it had met every other year. And Congress had already been notified just like every other year. In a series of meetings of the National Security Agencies, everyone except the OMB supported the provision of the assistance. And OMB, as we know, is headed by Mick Mulvaney, the president's chief of staff. Ukraine experts at DOD, the State Department, and the White House emphasized that it was in the national security interest of the U.S. to continue to support Ukraine in its fight. But it wasn't just the national security concern, because many people thought that the hold was just outright illegal. And they were right. It was. The president's hold did violate the law, because just last week, Congress's independent, Nonpartisan watchdog, the Government Accountability Office, released an opinion finding that the hold was illegal. President Trump held the military aid money for so long that the administration ran out of time to spend the money. Ultimately, even after the president lifted the hold on September 11th, again with no clear explanation why, we, the Congress, had to pass another law to extend the deadline delaying the delivery of the aid. So we know there was a hold, but there was no lawful way to implement that hold. So the OMB had to use creative methods. There is a process for making sure that U.S. aid money makes it to the right place to the right people. A process that has been followed every year since Congress approved security assistance to Ukraine. The administration needed to find a way, a creative way, of getting around that process. Later in the evening of July 25th, the OMB found that way, even though DOD had already notified Congress that the funds would be released. Here is how it worked. First, OMB issued guidance asserting that there was an ongoing review of assistance, even though none of the witnesses who testified were aware of any review of assistance. Second. OMB also attempted to hide the hold in a series of technical footnotes and funding documents. And third, OMB's leadership also transferred responsibility for approving funding obligations from career civil servant Mark Sandy to a political appointee, Mark Duffy, someone with no relevant experience in this funding. Based on recent public reporting and documents DOD released under the Freedom of Information Act, we learned that on July 25th, Approximately 90 minutes after President Trump's phone call with President Zelensky, Mr. Duffy put this three-pronged plan into motion when he sent an email to senior DOD officials, copying Sandy. The email is in front of you. In this email, Duffy stated, quote, based on guidance I have received and in light of the administration's plan to review assistance to Ukraine, Please hold off on any additional DOD obligations of these funds pending direction from that process. Duffy also underscored, quote, given the sensitive nature of the request, I appreciate you keeping that information closely held to those who need to know to execute the direction. In other words, don't tell anybody about it.
2: But, as House Manager Crow recounts, the hold was not going to stay secret.
1: On July 25th, a member of my staff got a question from a Ukraine embassy contact asking what was going on with Ukraine security assistance. Because at that time, we did not know what the guidance was on USAI. Uh, The OMB notice of apportionment arrived that day, but the staff member did not find out about it until later. I was informed that the staff member told the Ukrainian official that we were moving forward on USAI but recommended that the Ukraine embassy check in with state regarding the FMF.
0: USAI referred to the 250 million that OMB blocked DOD from sending to Ukraine. FMF referred to the 141 million that they blocked from the State Department. On July 25th, Cooper's staff also received two emails from the State Department revealing that the Ukrainian embassy was, quote, asking about security assistance, and that the Hill knows about the FMF situation to an extent, and so does the Ukrainian embassy. One of Cooper's staff members reported additional contacts with Ukrainian officials about the hold in August. Finally, we know the Ukrainians knew about the hold because the New York Times published an interview with the former Deputy Foreign Minister of Ukraine, Elena Zirkel. She stated that she and President Zelensky's office received a cable in late July informing them of the whole. In short, by the time of Politico's report on August 28, the Ukrainians were well aware that the aid was not only important, was not, was not the only important official act that the White House was withholding from them. The long-sought White House visit for President Zelensky was also in limbo. As all of this transpired, Ukrainian troops were still on the front lines in eastern Ukraine, facing off against Russian-backed forces, dying in defense of their country. Ambassador Bill Taylor visited those Ukrainian troops on July 26. He recalled seeing, quote, the armed and hostile Russian-led force on the other side of the damaged bridge across the line of the contact. When asked to reflect on that visit, here is what Ambassador Taylor had to say.
10: Let's talk about July 26th, a lot of years later. You go to the front, you go to Donbass, with Ambassador Volker, I believe, and you're on the bridge, and you're looking over on the front line at the Russian soldiers. Is that, is that what you recalled? Yes, sir. And you said the commander there, the Ukrainian commander, thanked you for the American military assistance that you knew was being withheld at that moment.
4: That's correct.
7: How'd that make you feel, sir?
4: Badly. Why? Mm-hmm. Because it was clear that that commander counted on us. It was clear that that commander had confidence in us. It was clear that that commander had was appreciative of the capabilities that he was given by that assistance, but also the reassurance that we were supporting him.
0: Like me, Ambassador Taylor is a combat veteran. In fact, he was awarded a Bronze Star. Ambassador Taylor knew how vital our military aid was to those Ukrainian troops because he knows what it feels like to have people counting on you. Members of the U.S. Senate, I know you believe that aid is important, too. Because 87 members of this body voted to support it. President Trump did not think the aid was important last year. He ignored you and the direction of Congress. He betrayed the confidence of our Ukrainian partners and U.S. national security when he corruptly withheld that aid. And he did so because he simply wanted to help his own political campaign. Our men and women in uniform deserve better. Our friends and allies deserve better. The American people deserve better.
2: Following Representative Crow, House Manager Val Dennings outlined the facts concerning a White House meeting sought by the Ukraine government.
11: Chief Justice Roberts, senators and counsel for the president, Now I want to talk to you about the White House meeting that President Trump offered to President Zelensky during their first phone call in April. But as you know, that meeting has not been scheduled. It was never scheduled. Ambassador Sondland testified that after the May 23rd meeting with President Trump, it became clear that President Zelensky would not be invited to the Oval Office until he announced the opening of investigations that would benefit President Trump's reelection, During his testimony, Ambassador Sondland stressed that it was a clear quid pro quo. Let's listen.
9: I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. Mr. Giuliani conveyed to Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volker and others that President Trump wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing to investigations of Burisma and the 2016 election. Mr. Giuliani expressed those requests directly to the Ukrainians and Mr. Giuliani also expressed those requests directly to us. We all understood that these prerequisites for the White House call and the right White House meeting reflected President Trump's desires and
11: requirements. Ambassador Sondland also testified that the scheme to pressure Ukraine into fulfilling the president's requirements for an Oval Office meeting became progressively and more specific and problematic, what he described as a continuum of insidiousness. He explained the evolution from generic requests to investigate corruption, to calls to pursue specific allegations against President Trump's political opponents. Here is Ambassador Sondland again.
9: Well, uh, Mr. Chairman, When we left the Oval Office, uh, I believe on May 23rd, uh, the request was very generic for an investigation of corruption in a very vanilla sense and uh, dealing with some of the oligarch problems in Ukraine, which were longstanding problems. And then as time went on, uh, more specific items got added to the menu, uh, including the Uh, Burisma and 2016 election uh, meddling specifically, the DNC service specifically, and over this this continuum, uh, it became more and more difficult to secure the White House meeting because more conditions were being placed on the White House meeting.
11: In short, Ambassadors Volker and Sondland understood that to get the meeting scheduled, they needed to get Mr. Giuliani's agreement first. On June 27, Ambassador Sondland explained to Ambassador Taylor that President Trump needed to hear from the Ukrainian leader before he would consent to a White House meeting. Here is how Ambassador Taylor explained it.
4: On June 27th, Ambassador Sondland told me during a phone conversation that President Zelensky needed to make clear to President Trump that he, President Zelensky, was not standing in the way of investigations.
11: Diplomat David Holmes testified that he understood early on the investigations to mean the Burisma-Biden investigations that Mr. Giuliani and his associates had been speaking about publicly. Mr. Holmes noted that while President Trump was withholding an Oval meeting with Ukraine's newly elected leader, he agreed to meet with Ukraine's chief foe, Vladimir Putin. Mr. Holmes had this to say.
10: Also on June 28th, while President Trump was still not moving forward on a meeting with President Zelensky. We met with he met with Russian President Putin at the G20 summit in Osaka, Japan, sending a further signal of lack of support to Ukraine.
11: Ambassador Volker did not dispute other witnesses testimony that President Trump conditioned Oval Office meetings on President Zelensky's willingness to announce investigations. Indeed, Ambassador Volker helped matters along. Ambassador Volker testified that at a conference in early July, he suggested that President Zelensky speak to President Trump on the phone to discuss the investigations. During his testimony, Ambassador Volker described that encounter.
10: And in the July 2nd or 3rd meeting in Toronto that you had with President Zelensky, you also mentioned investigations to him, right? Yes. And again, you were referring to the Burisma 2016. I, I was thinking of Burisma
2: in 2016.
10: Okay. And you understood that that's what the Ukrainians interpreted references to investigations to be related to Burisma in the 2016 election.
0: I, I don't know specifically at uh, that time if we had talked to that specifically, Burisma 2016, with President Zelensky. That was my assumption, though, that they would have been thinking that, too.
11: Mr. Giuliani became an inescapable presence to both Ukrainian officials and American diplomats. To the Ukrainians, Rudy Giuliani was seen as both a potential channel to President Trump and an obstacle to a productive U.S.-Ukraine relationship. A top aide to President Zelensky texts to Volker that, I feel that the key for many things is Rudy and I'm ready to talk with him at any time. But everyone understood that Mr. Giuliani was no rogue agent. He was acting at the direction of the president. Ambassador Sondland clearly described Mr. Giuliani's role in regard to the president. Let's listen.
9: Mr. Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo for arranging a White House visit for President Zelensky. Mr. Giuliani demanded that Ukraine make a public statement announcing the investigations of the 2016 election DNC server and Burisma. Mr. Giuliani was expressing the desires of the President of the United States and we knew these investigations were important to the president.
11: Concerned about Mr. Giuliani's influence began to grow. On July 10th, at a meeting between Ambassador Taylor and two Ukrainian officials in Kyiv, Ukrainian officials said they were very concerned because Mr. Giuliani had told the corrupt prosecutor general, Lysenko, that President Trump would not meet with the Ukrainian leader. Back in Washington, two important encounters at the White House further revealed the existence of a corrupt quid pro quo. Ambassador Sondland first broached the investigation in a meeting in Ambassador Bolton's office with Bolton's Ukrainian counterpart and President Zelensky's top aide. Also present were Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volker, and NSC officials Dr. Hill and Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Toward the end of the meeting, the Ukrainians raised the topic of an Oval Office meeting between President Trump and President Zelensky. Ambassador Bolton started to respond when Ambassador Sondland interjected and raised the demands of the investigation. Here is how Lieutenant Colonel Vinman recalled the conversation.
3: To the best of my recollection, Ambassador Sondland said that in order to get a White House meeting, the Ukrainians would have to provide a deliverable, which is investigations, specific
11: investigations. And- Ambassador Volker separately confirmed this recollection, recollection during his testimony.
0: I participated in the july 10th meeting between national security advisor bolton and then ukrainian chairman of the national security and defense council alex Daniliuk. as i remember the meeting was essentially over when ambassador sondland made a general comment about investigations i think all of us thought it was inappropriate
11: ambassador bolton also found ambassador sondland's reference to be inappropriate and he abruptly ended the meeting. However, Ambassador Sondland was not deterred. He convened a second meeting where he discussed what needed to happen before an Oval Office meeting. Apparently, Ambassador Sondland had received his marching orders from the President, and he was determined to carry them out. Bolton sent Dr. Hill to join that meeting and report back. And this is what Dr. Hill had to say.
12: And so when I came in, uh, Gordon Sunderland uh, was basically saying, well, look, we have a deal here that there will be a meeting. I have a deal here with, uh, with uh, Chief of Staff Mulvaney. There will be a meeting if the Ukrainians open up or announce these investigations and, uh, into 2016 in Burisma. And I cut it off immediately there. Because by this point, having heard Mr. Giuliani over and over again on the television and all of the issues uh, that he was um, asserting, by this point, it was clear that Burisma was code for the Bidens because Giuliani was laying it out there.
11: After the meeting, Dr. Hill followed up with Ambassador Bolton and relayed what transpired. Bolton was alarmed. In other words, Ambassador Bolton didn't want any part of it. He directed Dr. Hill to brief the NSC's top attorney, John Eisenberg, as she explained during her hearing. What was that specific instruction? The
12: specific instruction was that I had to go to the lawyers, to John Eisenberg, uh, our senior counsel for the National Security Council, Uh, to basically say, you tell Eisenberg, Ambassador Bolton told me, that I am not part of uh, this whatever drug deal that Mulvaney and Sondland are cooking up.
10: What did you understand him to mean by the drug deal that Mulvaney and Sondland were cooking up? I
12: took it to mean investigations for a meeting.
10: Did you go speak to the lawyers?
12: I certainly did.
11: Senators, as a former chief of police... I think it's quite interesting that Ambassador Bolton categorized the corrupt scheme, the pressure campaign, as a, quote, drug deal. I think that Ambassador Bolton was trying to send send us a very powerful message. A message that not only would the lawyers, the top lawyer, understand, but that every person would understand. Every member of the House, every member of the Senate, every member of our great country, every citizen. And Ambassador Bolton also wanted to make clear, especially to the top attorney, that he did not want to have anything to do with a drug deal In progress but we do know we know now of course that ambassador Bolton can testify directly about this he can testify directly for himself about this meeting if he appears before this body as he has indicated that he is prepared to do if this body is willing to issue a subpoena. We need to hear from Ambassador Bolton, and I know the American people want to hear from Ambassador Bolton as well. Dr. Hill testified that she spoke to Mr. Eisenberg twice. Dr. Hill also indicated that Mr. Eisenberg took notes of their meeting, which we, to no surprise now, do not have, we have not received because of the President's obstruction. It's clear Ambassador Sondland was not operating a rogue operation. He testified that everyone, everyone was in the loop. Let's listen once again.
9: Everyone was in the loop. It was no secret. Everyone was informed via email on July 19th, days before the presidential call. As I communicated to the team, I told President Zelensky in advance that assurances to run a fully transparent investigation and turn over every stone were necessary in his call with President Trump.
11: In the email referenced, Ambassador Sondland wrote the following to Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Perry, and Mr. Mulvaney regarding President Zelensky. He is prepared to receive POTUS's call. will assure him that he intends to run a fully transparent investigation and will turn over every stone. Both Mulvaney and Perry responded to the email noting that the head of state call would be scheduled right away. Now you may be asking, what did Mulvaney know about these investigations? And did he have any conversations with President Trump about them? Senators, this body is entitled to see all of the evidence. And you know what? The American people are entitled to hear all of the evidence. And while the nature of the drug deal we have talked about was uncontested, it is important for the country to know that everyone was involved Because we've heard it, everyone was in the loop. Now, later that day, July 19th, Ambassador Sondland texted Ambassadors Volker and Taylor about the upcoming head of state telephone call. And the text said, looks like POTUS called tomorrow. I spoke directly to Zelensky and gave him a full briefing. He's got it. Ambassador Volker replied to Sondland's text, most important is for Zelensky to say that he will help investigations. The evidence shows that the Ukrainians understood what they needed to do to earn a White House meeting with the president. On July 20th, the day after Ambassador Sondland's phone call with President Zelensky, Ambassador Taylor spoke with the Ukrainian National Security Advisor. Ukraine's National Security Advisor conveyed that the Ukrainian president did not want to become an instrument in U.S. politics. Here is how Ambassador Taylor explained that concern.
10: What did you understand it to mean when that Zelensky had concerns about being an instrument in Washington domestic re-election politics?
4: Mr. Doniluk understood uh, that these investigations um, were pursuant to uh, Mr. Giuliani's request to develop information, to find information uh, about Burisma and the Bidens, this was very well-known uh, in public. Uh, Mr. Giuliano had made this point clear in several uh, instances in the beginning, in, in the, in the uh, springtime. Um, and Mr. John Luke was aware that that was a problem.
10: And would you agree that because President Zelensky is worried about this, they understood at least that there was some pressure for them to pursue these investigations? Is that fair?
4: Mr. Donaluk indicated um, that President Zelensky certainly understood it, that he did not want to get involved in uh, these type of activities.
11: The next day, Ambassador Taylor relayed the Ukrainian leader's concerns to Volker and Sondland. But Ambassador Sondland did not back down. Specifically, Ambassador Sondland text in response to Ambassador Taylor's worry. Absolutely. But we need to get the conversation started and the relationship build, irrespective of the pretext. Again, Ambassador Sondland had his marching orders, and he was determined to carry them out. A call between President Trump and President Zelensky was scheduled for July 25th. Before the call, President Trump spoke to Sondland and reiterated his expectation that the Ukrainian leader would commit to the investigations. Ambassador Sondland subsequently contacted Ambassador Volcker and relayed the message to him. Volcker then text Zelensky's top aide with President Trump's instructions. Assuming President Xi convinces Trump He will investigate, get to the bottom of what happened in 2016. We will nail down the date for a visit to Washington. Senators, in other words, even before the July 25th phone call with President Zelensky, before it ever took place, Ukraine understood what it needed to initiate that it needed to initiate the investigations into the debunked conspiracy theory about the 2016 election as a condition for President Zelensky, the newly elected Ukrainian president, to visit the White House. Ambassador Sondland testified that acting on President Trump's direct orders, he and Ambassador Volker prepped President Zelensky for the telephone call.
10: And you would agree that the message in this that is expressed here is that President Zelensky needs to convince Trump that he will do the investigations in order to nail down the date for a visit to Washington, D.C. Is that correct? That's correct.
11: By this time, nonpartisan career officials involved with Ukraine policy had become aware of this quid pro quo. Here is what three of them said during their testimony. Ambassador Taylor, the meeting President Zelensky wanted was conditioned on investigations of Burisma and alleged Ukrainian influence in the 2016 elections. Ambassador David Holmes, it was made clear that some action on a Burisma Biden investigation was a precondition for an Oval Office visit. Dr. Hill, there seems to be an awful lot of people involved. You know, basically turning a White House meeting into some kind of asset that was dangled out to the Ukrainian government, a White House visit, a visit to the Oval Office dangled out to the Ukrainian government. Senators, I ask you to think about those words as we decide, as you decide, what action you will take. Think about those words, there was no doubt the direction came from the President of the United States. The President was the center of this scheme. Ambassador Sondland testified that Mr. Giuliani was expressing the desires of the President of the United States and we knew these investigations were important to the President. Ambassador Sondland added that Mr. Giuliani followed the direction of the president and we followed the president's orders. However, as Ambassador Taylor testified, Ambassador Bolton was not interested in having did not want to have the call because he thought it was going to be a disaster. He thought that there could be some talk of investigations or even worse than that. He thought, what was Ambassador, I I, I asked you today, Senators, what was Ambassador Bolton so afraid that President Trump would say to the newly elected Ukrainian president, what was the National Security Adviser so afraid that President Trump would say to President Zelensky. And this is another topic we'd like to ask Ambassador Bolton about if and when he appears before this body.
2: House manager Hakeem Jeffries then rose to discuss in detail President Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky.
13: For the next few moments, I would like to discuss President Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukraine's newly elected leader. The president claims that his call was perfect. Nothing can be further from the truth. The call is direct evidence of President Trump's solicitation of foreign interference in the 2020 election as part of a corrupt scheme. It is important, of course, to remember the context of this call. The new Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, was in a vulnerable position and viewed American and diplomatic military support as critical to his standing and to Ukraine's fragile future as a democracy. Equally significant, as outlined by my colleagues, America has a strong national security interest in supporting Ukraine against Russia's continued aggression. Here is what President Trump said on that call, the other thing, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution. And a lot of people want to find out about that. So, whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So, if you can look into it, it sounds horrible to me. Now, the Trump administration officials who participated in the impeachment inquiry, unanimously testified that there was no factual support for the allegation that Vice President Biden did anything wrong or misused his authority. When he pressed for the removal of Ukraine's corrupt former prosecutor general, Joe Biden, did nothing wrong. The witnesses testified that Vice President Biden was in fact carrying out official US policy to clean up the Prosecutor General's office in Ukraine. This policy, of course, aligned with the perspective of many in this very distinguished body, as well as our European allies throughout the world, as well as the International Monetary Fund. Vice President Biden did not remove Yuri Lutsenko, the corrupt, corrupt prosecutor. The Ukrainian government did, with the support of the free world. Nonetheless, On October 3rd, 2019, when a reporter asked President Trump what exactly did you hope Zelensky would do about the Bidens after your phone call, President Trump responded as follows.
7: Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Bidens. It's a very simple answer.
13: Start a major investigation into the Bidens. The evidence of wrongdoing by President Trump is hiding in plain sight. During the July 25th call, President Trump also repeatedly pressed the Ukrainian president to coordinate with his personal attorney, Rudolf Giuliani. Why was Rudolf Giuliani's name mentioned multiple times during the July 25th phone call? Giuliani is not the Secretary of State. He's not an ambassador. He's not a member of the diplomatic corps, Rudolf Giuliani is a cold-blooded political operative for President Trump's reelection campaign. On a July 25th call, President Trump also suggested that President Zelensky speak with the Attorney General, William Barr about the two fake investigations that the president sought. This is important to keep in mind. At no time during this entire sordid scheme, was there an ongoing American law enforcement investigation. into the phony slander related to Joe Biden or the conspiracy theory related to Ukrainian interference, in the 2016 election. At no time was there an ongoing American law enforcement investigation. America is the leader of the free world. We do not urge other sovereign countries to target American citizens. Absent any legitimate basis whatsoever, absent any scintilla of evidence. Apparently, President Trump does not play by those rules.
2: House Manager Schiff resumes after dinner recess. They're seven hours into the proceeding. Congressman Schiff begins re-outlining the timelines of the president's actions and makes a plea for the body to weigh the importance of their decision.
6: President's counsel would love you to believe this is just about Ukraine. You don't need to care about Ukraine. Who cares about Ukraine? How many people could find Ukraine on a map? Why should we care about Ukraine? Well, we should care about Ukraine. They're an ally of ours. If it matters to us, we should care about the fact that in 1994 when we asked them to give up their nuclear weapons that they had inherited from the Soviet Union and they didn't want to give them up and we were worried about proliferation. If you keep getting told you gotta go talk to the lawyers, there's a problem. If things are perfect, you don't get told, go talk to the lawyers time and time again. Morrison confirmed that he did talk to the lawyers, in part to ensure there was a record of what Ambassador Sonlin was doing. That record exists within the White House. Would you like me to read you that record? I'd be happy to read you that record. It's, It's there for your asking. Of course, the president has refused to provide that record. Precisely why did Ambassador Bolton direct Morrison to tell the lawyers, to talk to the lawyers? Would you like Ambassador Bolton to tell you why he said that? He'd be happy to tell you why he said that. He's there for your asking. What did Bolton know about the freeze and aid prior to this meeting in Warsaw? What what did he mean that if he can press Zelensky, it's gonna depend on whether he can press Zelensky, like to know what that meant? I'd like to know what he meant by that. I think we know what he meant by that. You might recall from the tape yesterday, Ambassador Taylor said, they'll be shortly coming, I'm told. Well, somebody countermanded that instructions. Who do we think that was? But you should see them. If you have any question about what Sondland told Ambassador Taylor, if if the President's Council tries to create any confusion about what Sondland told Taylor, about his conversation with the president. And look, Sondland had one recollection in his deposition and another recollection in the first hearing and another recollection in the declaration. You wanna know exactly what happened in that conversation when it was fresh in Sondland's mind and he told Taylor about it and Taylor wrote it in its notes, you're gonna want Taylor's notes. In any courtroom in America holding a fair trial, you would wanna see contemporaneous notes. This Senate should be no different. Demand those notes. Demand to see the truth. We're not afraid of those notes. We haven't seen them. We haven't seen them. Maybe those notes say something completely different. Maybe those notes say no quid pro quo. Maybe those notes say it's a perfect call. I'd like to see them. I'm willing to trust Ambassador Taylor's testimony and his recollection. I'd like to see them. I'd like to show them to you. They're yours for the asking. According to Mr. Morrison's testimony, former Republican staffer on the Armed Services Committee, he speaks with sondland on September 7th. And Sonlon says he's just gotten off the phone with Trump. Okay, so this is contemporaneous. Just got off the phone. Call is fresh in everybody's mind. And what was said? Morrison says, Ambassador Sondland related, there was no quid pro quo, but President Zelensky had to make the statement, and he had to want to do it. No quid pro quo, but there's a quid pro quo. Now, there are notes that show this. There's a written record of this. There's a written record of what President Trump told Ambassador Sondland right after that call. Would you like to see that written record? It's called Mr. Morrison's Notes. It's right there for the asking. If these fine lawyers over here want to persuade you that call didn't happen or it wasn't said or all he said was no quid pro quo, he never said, but you have to go to the mic and you have to want to do it, well, There's a good way to find out what happened on that call because it's in writing. Is there any question why they're withholding this from Congress? Is there any question about that? Uh, They didn't claim, well, Mr. Morrison didn't claim absolute immunity and Mr. Sondland didn't claim absolute immunity. There's no absolute immunity over these notes. No executive privilege over these notes. The notes have already been described. The conversation's already been released. There's no even plausible, arguable, invented even, excuse for withholding these notes. would you like to see them? I tell you, in any courtroom in America, you'd get to see them. This should be no different. Wouldn't be any different in a fair trial anywhere in America.
2: As House Manager Lofgren takes a dais, she stresses the importance of needing documents and testimony from White House officials and witnesses being blocked by the Trump administration.
14: Mr. Chief Justice and Senators, thank you for your patience. This is a lot of information, but you have a very important obligation, and that is ultimately to decide whether the president committed impeachable offenses. And in order to make that judgment, You have to have all of the facts. And so we're going through this chronology. We're close to being done. But it's important to know that uh, while all of this material was going on, these deals were being made, there were other forces at work. Even before the President's freeze on U.S. military assistance to Ukraine became public on August 28th, members of both Houses of Congress began to express concern. On August 9th, the Democratic leadership of the House and Senate Appropriations Committee wrote to the OMB and the White House warning that a hold on assistance might constitute an illegal impoundment of funds. They urged the Trump administration to follow the law and obligate the funding. When the news of the frozen aid broke... On August 28th, congressional scrutiny of President Trump's decision increased. On September 3rd, a group of senators, both Republicans and Democrats, including Senator Gene Shaheen, Senator Rob Portman, Senator Dick Durbin, Senator Ron Johnson, Senator Richard Blumenthal, sent a letter to acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney expressing and I quote, deep concerns that the administration is considering not obligating. Later that same day on September 9th, the Inspector General informed the House and Senate Intelligence Committees he determined that the whistleblower complaint that had been submitted on on August 12th appeared to be credible, met the definition of urgent concern under the statute, and yet, he reported, that for the first time ever, the acting director of national intelligence was withholding this whistleblower complaint from Congress. That violated the law, which required him to send it in seven days. The acting director later testified that his office initially withheld the complaint based on the advice from the White House and an unprecedented intervention by the Department of Justice. Now, according to public reporting and testimony from the acting DNI at a hearing before the House Intelligence Committee on September 26th, the White House had been aware of the whistleblower complaint for weeks prior to the IG's September 9th letter to the Intelligence Committees. Acting DNI McGuire testified that when he received the whistleblower complaint from the Inspector General, His office contacted the White House Counsel's Office for guidance. Consistent with acting DNI McGuire's testimony, the New York Times has reported that in late August, the President's current defense counsel, Mr. Cipollone, and NSC lawyer John Eisenberg personally briefed President Trump about the complaint's existence and told the President they believed the complaint could be withheld from Congress on executive privilege grounds. Now, on September 10th, the next day, Ambassador Bolton resigned from his position as National Security Advisor. On that same day, September 10th, Chairman Schiff of the House Intelligence Committee wrote a letter to the acting director demanding that he provide the complaint as the law required. The next day, on September 11th, President Trump lifted the hold on the security assistance uh, to Ukraine to declassify Williams' addendum so the American people could also see the additional evidence about this call. We urge the senators to review it, and we ask again that the White House declassify it. As the House wrote in two separate letters, there is no basis to keep it classified. And again, in case the White House needs a reminder, it's improper to keep something classified just to avoid embarrassment or to conceal wrongdoing. Now, we've been through uh, a lot of facts today. We've seen uh, the president's scheme, a shakedown of Ukraine for his personal benefit, uh, was, I believe, an obvious abuse of his power. But this misconduct, the scheme, became exposed. Congress asked questions. The press reported. Non-political officers in the government expressed concern. The whistleblower laws were activated. As this happened, there was an effort to create an after-the-fact misleading record to avoid responsibility for what the President had actually been doing. These were not the only efforts to hide misconduct, and the misconduct continued. Congressman Schiff will review some of those items.
2: Congressman Schiff closes the House arguments for the evening.
6: As you can see, right up until last night, evidence continues to be produced. The truth is going to come out. Indeed, the truth has already come out, but more and more of it will. More emails are going to come out. More witnesses are going to come forward. They're going to have more relevant information to share. And the only question is, do you want to hear it now? Do you want to know the full truth now? Do you want to know just who was in the loop? Sounds like everyone was in the loop. You want to know how broad the scheme was? We have the evidence to prove that President Trump ordered the aid withheld. He did so to coerce Ukraine to help his reelection campaign. He withheld a White House meeting to coerce the same sham investigations. We can and will prove President Trump guilty of this conduct and of obstructing the investigation into his misconduct. But you and the American people should know who else was involved in this scheme. You should want the whole truth to come out. You should want to know about every player in this sordid business. It is isn't within your power to do so. And I would urge you, even if you are prepared to vote to convict and impeach and remove this president, to find out the full truth about how far this corruption goes. Because I think the public has a right to know. Now today, well yesterday we made the case for why you should hear this additional evidence and testimony. This morning I introduced you to the broad sweep of the president's conduct. And then during the course of today, we walked you through a factual chronology uh, in real time about how this plot unfolded. And let me just uh, conclude this evening by remarking again on what brought us here. What brought us here is that some courageous people came forward, courageous people that risked their entire careers. And one of the things that's been so striking to me about that as I watch these witnesses like Maria Yovanovitch and Ambassador Taylor and David Holmes and others, Dr. Hill, is how much these dedicated officials were willing to risk their career The beginning of their career or the middle of their career or late in their career, when they had everything to lose. But people senior to them who have every advantage, who sit in positions of power, lack that same basic commitment, lack that same basic willingness to put their country first and expose wrongdoing? Why is it that Colonel Vindman, who worked for Fiona Hill, who worked for John Bolton and Dr. Kupperman, why is it that they were willing to stick their neck out and answer lawful subpoenas when their bosses wouldn't? I don't know that I can answer that question, but I just can tell you I have such admiration for the fact they did. I think, and, 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 I, and I think this is some form of cosmic justice, that this ambassador that was so ruthlessly smeared is now a hero for her courage. There is justice in that. But what will really vindicate that leap of faith that she took is if we show the same courage. They risk everything, their careers. And yes, I know what you're asked to decide may risk yours too. But if they could show the courage, so can we. I yield back.
2: Before Justice Roberts gavels the proceedings, he allows a motion to include a classified document into
3: the non-public record. ...of Senate Resolution 243 of the 100th Congress, a single one-page classified document identified by the House managers for filing with the Secretary of the Senate that will be received on January 22, 2020, shall not be made part of the public record and shall not be printed but shall be made available pursuant to the standing order from the 100th Congress. The Majority Leader is recognized.
5: Mr. Chief Justice, colleagues, we're almost through for the evening. Before we adjourn, I'd like to acknowledge that tomorrow is the official last day for this term, Senate Pages. This group of... In addition to witnessing this uh, unusual event that we're all experiencing, uh, finally, I ask unanimous consent that trial adjourn until 1 p.m. Thursday, January 23rd, and this also constitute the adjournment of the Senate.
3: Without objection, so ordered. Senate is adjourned.
2: The proceedings are adjourned. Thank you for listening to Day 2 of the Impeachment. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, Supervising Producer Megan Adolski, Creative Producer Shar Dreyer, Executive Producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittis, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time.